You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, a pretty devastating tragedy struck uh, most of the city of Phoenix, uh, seemingly all at once because the Phoenix Suns lost in the NBA Finals to the Milwaukee Bucks. Our beloved Suns fell in six games. We were two games away from being crowned NBA champions for the first time in franchise history, and we tripped right at the finish line. And I was watching the game, actually, at my brother's house, and was sitting in the living room with a few friends, and was just taking in a lot of the emotions that tend to come up when you invest a lot of time and energy into a sports team, things like sadness and anger, And I also, over the next few days, was reminded of what our culture tells us to do with those emotions. Our culture says, take that sadness and wallow in it. There are sports fans I know who are still sad about games that happened decades ago. Mets fans can't get over a game from 1985, and they'll bring it up in any conversation. They'll talk about how sad they are about this loss that happened in 1985. You're burdened by this just weight of sadness. Or uh, our culture says, well, with that anger that you feel, go ahead and lash out people. Go ahead and call out the character of your opponent or uh, blame the officials. Call out the character of the officials uh, in their officiating of the games. It's this really weird thing that our culture does. They say, take your emotions and uh, thrust them out in really unhealthy ways. And in the middle of all of those reactions that were happening on social media and with some of my friends, I was also struck by one particular reaction uh, from the Phoenix Suns head coach, Monty Williams. This made its way around. Some of you nodded or said yes, because you remember what he said. He didn't wallow in sadness. He didn't lash out in anger about this team's loss. Instead, immediately after the game, he went over to the Milwaukee Bucks locker room, the team who had just defeated him. And they're holding the trophy that the Suns were hoping to hold. They're uh, wearing goggles because they're about to pop champagne and celebrate. And Monty comes in, and he thanks them. He thanks the Milwaukee Bucks for beating his team, because they made him a better coach, and they made his team a better team. And then he congratulated them and walked out. And in that moment, Monty Williams, the Suns head coach, usurped every worldly expectation that we have for how to respond to a loss. He was grateful for losing because it made him better and it made his team better. That's as uncompetitive and un-American a thing as you can do, being grateful for losing because we're a country full of winners, right? That's the important thing in our culture. And so I was thinking about it, and really, I think Monty has managed to inhabit a culture and yet not quite adopt all of the same habits as that culture. He manages to live within his culture, but not of his culture. He manages to live differently in the thick of a world that says, well, you should be wallowing in your sadness or lashing out in anger. He doesn't live that way. And in our next installment here this morning in our series, Christ's Vision for the Church, we're going to chat a little bit about how Jesus does something similar for us, how Jesus teaches us to live differently within our culture, still live in the world, but not of the world. And he's going to do that in one crucial area of our lives, relationships, because we are oriented by a different set of priorities as Christians than the world around us. Turn with me in a Bible, if you have one, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. It's near the backs of your Bibles if you're flipping there. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to be starting in verse 21 and reading all the way to chapter 6, verse 9. Uh, So feel free to follow along there. I'm also going to have the text up on the screen here for you to follow along. 
Ephesians 5, starting in 21. Be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the Savior. And just as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, in order to make her holy by cleansing her with the washing of water by the word, so as to present the church to himself in splendor, without a spot or wrinkle or anything of the kind. Yes, so that she may be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as they do their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own body, but he nourishes and tenderly cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, because we're members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a great mystery, and I'm applying it to Christ and the church. Each of you, however, should love his wife as himself, and a wife should respect her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you, and you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, in singleness of heart, as you obey Christ, not only while being watched and in order to please them, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Render service with enthusiasm as to the Lord, and not to men and women, knowing that whatever good we do, we will receive the same again from the Lord, whether we're slaves or free. And masters, do the same to them. Stop threatening them, for you know that you both have the same master in heaven, and with him there is no partiality. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We just covered a lot. I don't know if you guys noticed that. We're talking about a lot of well, heavy things and things that can be intimidating and difficult and sometimes painful for us. Because these words, words like be subject, words like obey, have been used throughout church history and sometimes still even in the church around the world today in really ugly ways. They've been used to bring about pain and oppression, not life and flourishing. And if you've been in a church or you've been in a scenario where these words have been weaponized in that way, I'm sorry. That's not how these words are meant to be read. That's not what they were meant for. And this is a church, this place, where you can process those things, where you can be open in a grace-filled environment to talk about and to heal from some of the ways that these words might have been used in ugly ways in your life. And that said, as just a, a caveat and a general kind of picture for us, a reminder for us, I also think that the concept of submission, as much as it turns us off in our culture, is actually about something other than the act of submitting itself. We know that authorities have abused their power, and we know that they've used things like submission and obedience to do it, but it's more about the character of those authorities than it is about the concept of submission itself. The thing that makes submission hard for us is whether we can rely on the one that we're submitting to, whether their character is reliable. A quick example for you. Every single one of you right now is committing an act of submission. You are subject to the chairs that you're sitting in. You've chosen, every one of you, to put all of your weight on this chair. And at any moment, it could collapse, right? But you believe it's reliable. And so submitting to the chair is not a problem for you because the character of the chair is a reliable one. If the chair had two legs, that might not be a chair you'd want to sit in, right? That would indicate that the character of this thing isn't great. And so it's not really the submission that's hard for us. It's the character of the one we submit to. The concept itself 
is not the issue. And what we need to remember when we read these words from Paul here is that he's rooting them in the character and the reliability of the person of Jesus Christ and the community of people that are developed that look like that Jesus. That's a Jesus who wants to bring life and flourishing, not a Jesus who wants to bring oppression and pain. That's a Jesus who gives himself up for us, not a Jesus who lords power over us. That's the character that Paul is seeking for us to emulate as the church and also to submit to in the church. And so whenever we read this text, we have to remember that big picture. We don't want to just focus in on certain words or certain verses. We have to remember the full scope of this letter that Paul is writing here. He's talking about how Jesus has brought redemption and reconciliation to our lives and to the world at large, that he's healing all of the systems that bring about darkness and pain and decay in our world. And then he's telling us in Ephesians that the church is the place where that happens. The church is the vehicle through which redemption and reconciliation arrives in the world. The church should be the embodiment of Jesus to others. That's what this letter is about. And so the church sits at this weird crossroads as a group of people who follow Jesus. We're an in-between community that both lives in a broken world that still has systems of decay and darkness, but lives differently because we know what Jesus has brought into the world. We know the reality of who Jesus is and what he's doing because we've experienced in our lives. We've experienced it in our community. And so, like Monty Williams, we as Christians need to learn how to live in the world, but not of the world. We need to learn how to inhabit the same spaces, schools and offices and restaurants, and yet inhabit them radically differently because we have a fully different picture of what relationships look like, of who a human is, of who God is, of what life really means. And so in this passage, Paul is showing us how we ought to live differently in our culture, in the same spaces that our culture inhabits, but how we ought to live differently through our relationships. And he does that using this ancient uh, standard that was uh, circulated in his day. It's called a household code. These were common. You can find these actually online. We have a lot of different copies of different household codes that existed in his day. And the household codes were used to implement social order. In the Greco-Roman world, they believed that uh, if your household was in order, and if everyone's household was in order, then society would therefore be in order. So you start with the smallest unit, and you expand that out to larger units. Paul is taking that structure and using it because it's language that his audience would have understood. But while he's using that same structure, the content of his code is radically different. What he's actually telling Christians to do in the middle of that structure is way different than what his culture would say. At every turn, he's undermining the dominant beliefs that the culture had about relationships. And he does that in uh, a few different ways. He starts first in verse 21 by saying, submit everyone, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the nice thing about saying out of, or be subject to one another is that he doesn't exclude anybody from that. He starts it by saying every Christian should have the posture of submission. Every Christian should have the posture of putting the other's needs before their own. That means prioritizing what's best for them over asserting your authority or dominance. That's the posture that every Christian should hold. And we do this out of reverence for Christ. We do this because Jesus gave us that example. The passage we read as our call to worship today uh, was Jesus' uh, submission to his disciples when he washed their feet, John chapter 13. And the reason the disciples were so offended is because Jesus was a king. He was their superior. He was the Messiah. He was the ruler. And for the ruler to don a servant's apron was offensive. He was belittling himself intentionally to serve them. 
And Jesus reminds them, hey, if you're going to follow me, if you're going to be one of my people, you need to do what I do. And that means you need to not assert your authority, not assert your dominance over people, but instead submit to them, serve them, give your life for them. We do that out of reverence for Christ. So if the king wore servant's clothes, then the king's followers probably should too. That's what Paul is getting at here right away at the start of his household code. And I think those words are especially pertinent for us today in our culture. Because our Western world says that self-assertion, that asserting your will or authority or dominance over a situation should be the default mode for living. We encourage people, for instance, that the most important thing that they can pursue is the protection of themselves and the building up of comfortable systems that they can live in. We seek to protect our own things. We seek to assert our authority in situations so that we can protect ourselves. That's why we have uh, the political fights that we have on TV. We look to dominate the other, not actually to submit to the other and learn from them and actually uh, create mutual uh, life and health. We want our side to dominate the other side. We want our side to win. We don't know how to be thankful for giving ourselves away. And Paul is saying here that the church should not live that way. The church should follow Christ's example, not as people who seek to assert authority over others, not as people who seek to dominate others, but as people who seek to be subject to others, to serve them, to love them. And he continues from this kind of start of his household code into specific ways that it plays itself out in particular relationships. He talks about wives and husbands, kids and parents, and then slaves and masters here. And I want to look at each of those uh, because Paul's doing some pretty radical stuff here. It may not feel like it uh, to us in the 21st century, but he's doing some pretty crazy stuff. So first, let's look at the wives and husbands passage here. And I think it's worth noting right off the bat the way that women were treated in Paul's culture. Because that shows us how radical Paul's words were. I pulled up a couple quotes that I think are going to be a little striking for you guys. The first is the Jewish view of women tended to we'll put them in a subordinate position, in a lower position, at the bottom of the social totem pole. There's actually an ancient prayer we've collected. This is fascinating. Jewish religious leaders would pray this. They'd say, thank you, God, for not making me a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So they are right at the bottom of the totem pole, right? Like really, really bummer of a spot for women. And the Greek culture wasn't much better. Here's a quote from a guy named Demosthenes. I, I got this one up on the screen because it, it's crazy to me when I read it. He said, we have courtesans, which are prostitutes, for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and we have wives for the sake of having children and household affairs. Demosthenes is assuming that the, sake, the purpose of women is to serve men here. The purpose of women is to be towards men's ends. Men determine and assert authority over women. That was the cultural view at the time. Women were only means to men's ends, and Paul radically undermines that in this passage. He elevates women, he protects women, he uplifts women in this passage. He does it with his command to husbands. Notice that nowhere does Paul say that husbands ought to assert their authority over women, that husbands ought to dominate them, that husbands ought to be the authority and the leader in that relationship. He doesn't say that there. He actually says for husbands to sacrificially love their wives. He says to give themselves up for her, just as Christ did for the church. That's giving every part of yourself for the benefit of the other. That follows directly after that verse 21. And what's fascinating is that in these Greek household codes that existed at the day, there's never an example of any code telling husbands to do what Paul tells them to do here. 
In fact, those household codes didn't even address women and children and slaves. They only addressed men because men needed to, to assert their authority in that culture. Paul is wiping away that expectation. He's saying, men, don't do what the culture tells you to do. Serve your wives. Love them. Give yourself up for them. And so he's protecting women and undermining the, the patriarchy of his day. He's giving men a radically different way of approaching their marital relationships here. And he also affirms the idea of mutual submission. He does say, wives submit to your husbands. And many times people will kind of rip that verse out and say, wives should submit to their husbands in all things, right? But that verse only follows directly after, be subject to one another. He, he puts this, this huge picture up first of uh, mutual submission before he tells wives to subject themselves to their husbands. And so if we ever read this passage and come away with a concept of one-sided submission, of only one party ever submitting to another party, then we've misread the text. We've overlooked verse 21. If we're ever saying it's a one-sided thing, we're missing the point of the passage. The point here is not to provide a structure for authority to be asserted. The point is to provide a template for mutual submission where both parties are giving up their authority for the sake of the other. Paul's giving Christians a radically new model for marriage. And reading those quotes from Demosthenes and the Jews of his day might make us think, oh man, we're so much better, right? We are way beyond this in our culture. But I think a cursory examination says that there's still all sorts of male authority assertion that's really ugly in our world. There's all sorts of domination of women that exists in our world. Here's some stats for you to consider. Every day, 33,000 underage girls across the globe, every day, become child brides. Every 24 hours, 33,000 underage girls become brides. At least 14 million girls or women are being sexually trafficked around the globe at this moment. And I say at least 14 million because most of those cases have not yet been reported, so it's probably higher than that. And Phoenix, the city of Phoenix, is an international hub for that sort of trafficking. In the United States alone, one in every seven women suffer domestic abuse at the hands of an intimate partner. One in every seven. You meet more than seven women. You're going to see more than seven women today. Abuse of women by male authority assertion is still a problem. That's why this place exists. That's why we meet here. Hope Women's Center exists because this is still a problem. We need healthy, marital, and intimate relationships in our lives. We need this idea of mutual submission in our world if we're to resolve any of these problems of authority abuse. And so Paul's words are urgent for us. We're called not to dominate each other, but to submit to each other. That's a radical message even in the 21st century where everything in our world is telling us to assert our authority and dominance over the other. And I've got an example from my own marriage, my wife Emily and I. Uh, she gave me permission to share this, so uh, I know it's okay. Uh, my wife is much more introverted than I am. I'm somebody who loves to be around humans all the time. If I could be around people, 98% of my days I'd be pretty content. And my wife's not quite that way. And that has meant over the eight years that we've known each other, we've had to kind of butt heads at certain points about what to do with our time and uh, what to do with our relationships. And if my wife only ever submitted to me, if I just asserted my authority and she only submitted to my authority in every social circumstance, then I would run her ragged because I would always push us outward, right? I would always use my authority well, to be social, to be around people. And on the flip side, if I only ever submitted to my wife, we wouldn't be as social. We wouldn't get to love our community in the same way. 
I probably couldn't be a really great pastor to serve people and care for them because I wouldn't be around you guys as much. The point of Paul's picture of marriage here is that we submit to one another. And so there's times where I want to be around people, but I say, you know what? I could use my authority here. I'm not going to because we could use some time in. I need to serve and love my wife in this situation. I'm going to give up my authority for the sake of loving her. And on the flip side, my wife will say, you know, I really don't feel like going out right now. Like, I, it's not going to be the best thing I feel like. It's going to be hard. It's going to be weird for me as an introvert. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to submit my authority here. I could assert my authority if I wanted to. I could really fight. But I'm going to trust that the thing we're doing, whether it's a dinner for a community member, whether it's a service project, it's going to be worth it. Because it's going to be worth loving our neighbors. So I'll submit to my husband here. I'll be subject to him. The only way our marriage gets healthy in our introversion and extroversion is if we have this posture of mutual submission to the other, where we are constantly seeking the best thing in each situation. That takes discernment. It's not a hard and fast rule, and it takes, well, a really healthy, loving relationship to make it happen. And Paul doesn't just stop with couples here. He actually continues into some other relationships, children and parents, for instance. And if you thought women had it bad in ancient culture, I've got some crazy news for you about kids. It was a rough go for them. In the Roman culture, there was a process called child exposure, which already sounds terrible, right? Before I even describe what it is, child exposure, not a great thing. Child exposure worked this way. Newborns would be laid at the feet of their father, and their father would choose either to keep them or throw them out. He had complete right over them. And then children were subject to their fathers even into adulthood. The Roman paterfamilias, as it was called, was the one who ruled children all the way through their lives. There's a first century Greek philosopher named Seneca who wrote these words. This is nuts. This is what the culture said about children at that time. We slaughter a fierce ox, we strangle a mad dog, we plunge the knife into sickly cattle, and children who are born weakly and deformed, we drown. Kids had it rough in the first century. That's what Paul is writing into. Children were just, again, the means to male ends, to father's ends. And Paul speaks right through those dynamics. He undermines those dynamics once again. He first reminds fathers not to provoke their children to anger. And the word he use, uses for anger there, it also carries with it the idea of discouragement. Essentially he's saying, don't heap guilt and shame and added weight onto your children, because it will cripple them. And it will lead them uh, well, to anger, to discouragement, and to want to rise up and will overthrow you as the ruler. Don't use your authority in ugly ways, he's saying. There's actually a really, I think, helpful story that illustrates how parents can do this well. Uh, it's from a guy named Benjamin West. He was a famous painter. Some of you may have seen some of his work. And he tells a story of when he was a little kid, and his mom left he and his younger sister, Sylvia, alone. She had to run a couple errands. And West had this brilliant idea as a little child. He's going to paint a portrait of his sister. He had this painter gene in him from when he was really young. And so he got all the paint out. He got a, a, a sheet of paper out that he could actually paint the, the portrait on. And he painted the portrait, but he also painted the rest of the room, as a child would do. Right? We've seen all sorts of uh, viral videos of kids doing things like this, grabbing markers or paint, and it ends up everywhere. And then his mom gets home. And she walks in the door. She sees the mess on the floor. She sees Sylvia and Benjamin covered in paint. And she sees the portrait. And she picks it up. And she says, oh, how beautiful. Sylvia, my daughter. Thanks, Ben. 
Thanks for painting this. And then they proceed to clean up the mess together. And Benjamin West, later in life, said these words about the story. He said, my mother's kiss, when she kissed me when she came home, my mother's kiss that day made me a painter. Her graciousness, her loving presence, her uh, lack of authority assertion in that moment, what led him to become the vocation that he became. It led him to be this world-renowned painter that he lived to be. And so parents in this room, and there's been a lot of new ones lately. We've had a lot of babies born in our community. Parents, you need to know that how you parent on a day-to-day -day basis in the little things, when your kids mess up, when they spill things around, the way you parent and the way you exemplify Christ in those spaces can transform their lives. And Paul goes on to say that children, because of this, should obey their parents. They should submit to their parents here. Because children are still growing, right? Any of us who have been around kids know that they don't have fully developed brains or bodies yet. They're not really sure how to live a safe human life. And so they need to obey their parents. And remember, that's always in the context of mutuality. They obey their parents because their parents do not provoke them to anger. They don't assert authority over them. They don't heap shame and guilt onto them. It's a mutual relationship. Recently, I was moving a friend of mine into a new home. And uh, they were walking around this new backyard that they had well, now got to live in. They got to discover this new place. And his son was looking around and found a barrel cactus in the backyard. He'd never seen a barrel cactus before. So he walks up to the cactus, and quickly my friend says, hey, don't touch that. It's going to hurt you. Not good. So he looks up at my friend, looks down at the cactus, and he immediately reaches out and tries to touch it. <laughs> immediately, no hesitation. And he's, my friend scooped him up before he could actually get poked, right, before it actually hurt him. But the point here is that the parent was trying to protect the child, right? The child hadn't quite developed to the point where they understood or trusted their parent that this was a sharp object that they shouldn't touch. It's the same sort of picture with the hot pan, right? Sometimes you need to burn yourself on the hot pan to know. That's what they say. Parents need to be able to avoid authority assertion, to build a trust and mutual relationship with their kids, and then their kids need to be able to obey him because of it. It's again this picture of mutuality. And we live in a world that needs good parents. We like to think that, well, we don't say things like we're going to drown the deformed kids, right? Because that's really ugly. But we have a lot of mental health professionals in our church here. You can ask them. Parent wounds are all over people's lives. Many of the, the issues that we have in our day to day around mental health uh, issues and illnesses they're related to parent wounds. And so being a parent that looks like Christ, being a parent who exemplifies Christ to their kids, it's not trivial. It means something. It can help avoid trauma for years to come. And Paul finishes with a tricky subject at the end for us in the 21st century. He talks about slaves and masters. And once again, slaves in that day didn't have things so great. Here's a quote from the famous Greek philosopher Aristotle. He said, a slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. So slaves weren't humans, they were just tools, right? And as soon as that tool broke down in that culture, slaves would be cast out. And Paul, again, usurps this degradation of slaves. He actually levels the playing field between slaves and masters in this passage. You may not have caught it, it's just a little phrase he says at the end. He says there's no partiality in Christ. He's saying that there's no difference between the value of a master and the value of a slave before Christ. No difference. No partiality. 
He's reminding every master that their slaves are equally esteemed and made in the image of God. And on the other end, he actually dignifies the work of slaves. See, in that day, slaves only really worked for their masters. And so their pleasure, the master's pleasure, was the one they worked for. And Paul reminds them, hey, you're working for something much bigger than that. You're working for a Christ who views you as beloved, who views you as an image bearer of the Most High God. So work for that Christ. That's what your work really means. And I know that in our culture, I, I've heard this objection. Why doesn't Paul just outright abolish slavery here or condemn slavery, right? That seems a little weird, like he's hanging on to slavery in the culture. A couple different things that I think are helpful for us in, that, in regard to that objection. First, well, Paul is writing a household code. And household codes didn't have to deal with big social issues. They actually had to deal with how do you function in the small areas of your life? How do you function in the ways that culture has given you to function? So his purpose in writing this was simply to tell people how to live in the day-to-day. -day. But on a bigger level, he lived in the Roman Empire, which meant he had no say over how things were constructed in the culture. And if he decided we're going to abolish slavery, he'd be wiped out in a second. There'd be no doubt. And it's likely that his churches that he was writing to would also be wiped out. They were undermining the empire. It wasn't a democracy like today where we actually have a voice to advocate for things to change. Paul didn't have a voice in his culture. And so he's sitting there saying, how, how do I both instill the inherent goodness in all people and bring people to this idea of mutual submission, but also uh, not die, also not ruin this new Christian movement? And so he does it actually by abolishing slavery without abolishing slavery. Functionally, he's looking at the structure and saying, hey, I know that they tell you that masters are better than their slaves, but that's not true. There's no partiality. So you as Christians, if you live with the slavery thing in your lives, great, that's fine. But remember that slavery is not what culture says it is. Slavery does not mean that there's one human that's better than another. Slavery, well, there's no partiality there. He manages to subtly undermine slavery without doing it. And so I think that's a helpful thought for us in the 21st century to remember Paul's context, remember his culture, and remember the people he's writing to. And slavery, to us, again, is pretty distant. We're hundreds of years removed in America from the construct of slavery. And so we think, well, what does this have to do with us? Well, I do think that we have social divisions, even if we don't have slavery in our world. Divisions based on labor, right? Imagine if somebody comes up and introduces themselves to you as a doctor or a lawyer or a politician. Immediately you think, impressive, well-educated, well-paid. That person has high social esteem, right? Imagine the same situation if somebody introduces themselves as a janitor or a landscaper or a service industry worker. You're probably like, oh, cool, right? They don't have the same social standing. They're bottom feeders in our culture. Paul is reminding us here that there's no partiality between a politician and a janitor. There's no partiality between a doctor and a service industry worker. They're all equally made in the image of God. They're all esteemed and beloved. Christ has died for all of them. He's leveled the playing field to break down those social divisions. And so that's how we need to live with one another. That's what the church should look like, friends. We should welcome people in here and esteem them independent of their social standing. The most esteemed person in this room must always be willing to serve the least esteemed person in this room because of Christ. He's leveled the playing field. And so whether you're in this room and you're married or single, whether you're in this room and you're a parent or a child, whether you're a doctor or a janitor, relationships 
are central to how we understand ourselves and how we actually go out and live in our world. And Paul's reminding us here that our job is to allow our relationships to be radically transformed by the good news of Jesus, to be radically transformed by the gospel. And so I'm going to ask you guys, look around this room at each other. Really look. Turn around. Make eye contact. Smile awkwardly. See the people that you know. See the people you don't know. Every person in this room is equal in the eyes of Christ. Every person in this room is someone Christ died to save. Every person in this room is someone Christ would wash their feet. And that means we ought to be the same sorts of people. That happens in this room and that happens outside this room. That happens for your coworkers. That happens for your neighbors. We need to be people who live with mutual subjection, mutual submission to one another. And when we do that, when we actually live that way, it starts to transform our world. It starts to transform this community and it starts to transform our neighborhoods. That's what we're made to do friends. Not assert authority or dominance, but submit our authority and dominance for the sake of loving others. That's the job of the church. Would you pray with me?